Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. Welcome to Legal Face Off 2020. It's the coronavirus episode. Rich Linkoff is here. My name is Sam Paniotta. Christina Martini, unfortunately, cannot join us for this episode, but she will be back before you know it. Ben Anderson is going to put all this together as we go through the Zoom calls on this Thursday morning. We're going to talk a whole bunch. We're going to talk about the, the detainees, the enforcing lockdown, a lot of Chicago Police Department fallout, plus lawyers working from home and the legal grab bag at the end of the show. Rich, you ready to rock? You ready to roll? Nice suit? Well, I wouldn't say suit necessarily because I'm not disclosing what's right below the uh, the, uh, the, the the breastplate here, the, the strike zone. But yeah, thank you. We missed Tina, of course. Uh, Tina cannot join us. Uh, she's busy with some other things. But yeah, jam-packed show today. And a record number of uh, grab bag participants later in the show. So can't wait for that. It'll be fun to make five people coexist on a Zoom call. But let's get to our first guest, a return guest on the show. He's been the sheriff in Cook County since 2006. We don't know where he is. Where's Carmen San Diego? Where is Sheriff Tom Dart? He's on a roof somewhere. Sheriff, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Sheriff Dart, uh, yeah, we really appreciate uh, your time and especially your service um, to the county during this very difficult time. So talk to us about how the virus is affecting your inmate population and also your staff and some steps you're doing to uh, remedy that. Richard, I mean, you know, the expression has been used a lot throughout here, but boy, it's an understatement when it comes to this is it applies to corrections. There is no playbook. And I'll be dead serious with you. I looked for one. And so when this started rolling back in January, I immediately started looking around the country to see what was going on, particularly in Washington, just because they had got hit first, to see what they were doing in the correctional settings. And I'm not exaggerating. There wasn't a playbook. Not only was there not a playbook, but what it was was just panic everywhere. So we've been inventing this as we go along, knowing that what we have here is a uh, college dorm where you can't let the students out, a, uh, a cruise ship that you won't, can't let anybody off, but just you keep bringing people on, actually. Um, those analogies apply here because I don't think people fully understand that, that in a jail setting, obviously you, you get it. People are locked up. But unlike prisons, jails are constantly seeing more and more people coming in. Um, as new crimes are committed, they come in here from all the communities that have the coronavirus popping up. Uh, interacting with people throughout those communities and then releasing people too. We're, we're also on a regular basis releasing people. So before this hit, we'd average about uh, 150, 200 new people every day coming into the jail, some for like hours, some for days, some for weeks, some for years. I've had people, I have people here right now that are waiting for the trial for nine years. So you have that whole group. And at the same time, we were churning about a similar number, about 150 or so people out the door too, because their cases were disposed of, probation, you name it. And so we have that constant movement. And so when this hit, it was something that it was very, very difficult to start mapping out. And so we did all these different tabletop things and you name it, to try to figure out, all right, how is it we're going to manage this very unmanageable thing? And we had, you know, I don't want to say fortunately, but we, we had over the years, we've had the flu outbreak here at the jail, Occur. So we knew what to do with contagious outbreaks and things like that. But this is so contagious and so deadly, we had to take it up to a completely different level and really start thinking completely differently about how what we're going to do here. Sheriff, we'll be covering here in a few minutes on our show some 
you know, maybe in a humorous way, uh, some celebrity inmates around the country who are seeking release, uh, alleging that the ex- potential exposure warrants their release. From a serious perspective, are you considering releasing any of your inmates as a result of uh, this growing problem? No, you know what? Because of the bond reform movement, um, and most all of it, very good. I mean, I was the loudest voice in saying we, can, we cannot be housing the mentally ill and poor people just because we don't care. Uh, and so over the course of the last two and a half years, there's been a monumental shift here to where when I started in 2006, I had about 11,000 people in custody. And in February of this year, before the coronavirus hit, uh, us, uh, I had about 5,500 in custody. My point being is that what we have down here now is the, the fact that most of the people in the jail, easily about 70, 75% are in on violent charges. So the ability to release people is, is not there. And it's not my function, frankly. It's the court function as such. And so what's been happening is the state's attorney's office, they've been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. They and the courts have been sitting down and going through basically that 20, 25% of the population I mentioned that were nonviolent uh, to see which ones could be released without posing any danger to the community. So there's been about another two, uh, 250 drop in my population. So I'm about at 5,200 people. Uh, so is there much more room to move there? Maybe another hundred or so, maybe where they're being held on probation violations, nonviolent offenses, but traditionally they're held here because they violated probation. So there might be a little bit of movement there, but at the end of the day, the majority of the people here are in on violent uh, charges, and we, we, you know, have to be very, very careful because we cannot be releasing violent people in the community. So what it's required me to do then is to try to figure out all the different ways that you can keep people who need to be confined in separate settings and, you know, settings where the disease will not be able to be passed from one person to another. But here, which is the, the big thing, which I don't think people fully understand, is that my staff who have been absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. There, there's been no uptick in people calling in sick and things like that. Uh, my staff live in their communities with their families and they go home every night. They come back to work every morning. Well, they're interacting with people that might have the COVID-19. Uh, and so even when I'm separating the detainees as we've been doing that and opening up new uh, buildings here to put people in, I still cannot keep this place completely protected because I have this movement of employees coming in. Sheriff, in addition to those challenges, um, you know, the county in the best of times doesn't have enough money, doesn't have enough resources. Uh, We just heard about the aid package that is going to be signed by the president. We've heard from, you know, the mayor and uh, Tony Preckwinkle. How are you doing in terms of resources? It sounds like your personnel are all doing amazing work, but in terms of, you know, PPEs, I'm sure there's a shortage. Talk to us about what you need um, in your department that could help get through this crisis. Yeah, definitely. You nailed it. If we could get more PPEs, what I really want to is the uh, rapid testing here. And with the rapid testing, we're, we're testing people right now. We have 17 confirmed cases of detainees. I have five confirmed cases of employees uh, who have reached, uh, who have got COVID-19, one police officer and four people working in the correctional setting. Um, But if I could have rapid testing so that any officer coming here uh, who feels that they might not be, uh, you know, they might have a fever, they might not be feeling 100%, we could rapidly test them either on entrance or exit. That would be really helpful. I've been asking for that, have not been able to get it. Uh, PPEs, 
we're doing okay right now, but clearly in the weeks to come, I will not be. I could absolutely use more of those as well. So those are things that could be a great help to me right now. And as far as like just the budget side of things, most of everything I've been doing so far has been working within structures I have, uh, staff I have. Uh, so that has not been major causes when I uh, cost. So when I've reopened the boot camp, for example, that structure has been there for years. I've taken a lot of work by some great employees again to get the beds in there and things like that to set up this. Literally, you know, the, the Chinese set up a new, uh, built a new hospital in 10 days. We set up, we didn't build it, but we set up a, a hospital in three days here. So we reopened the old boot camp. We, we got it fitted now to where it's going to be a hospital setting where we can keep people who are diagnosed, but also quarantine people who we're afraid of as well. Those things did not cost me any money. Uh, just a lot of extra hard work, though. Sheriff, how do you think that Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Prisker have handled this? Because throughout this crisis, and it is a crisis, we're looking for calm and collective leadership. How do you think that they've handled this? I mean, amazing. They really have. I mean, you just nailed it. The, the reality is, is that when crises occur, whatever they are, this you know, September 11th, you name it, the public not only needs, but they deserve to have people who are their leaders who have cool heads who aren't sitting there yelling, screaming, certainly not lying and making stuff up, but are saying, here are the facts. Here's what we have in front of us. Here's what we have to do. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be a little bit painful, but this is what we need to do. And both of them have clearly excelled at that. There's been no messing around. And just last night, you know, the mayor was on about the activity of people, which, you know, stunned her, stuns me, how people can sit there and act as if this is more or less somewhat of a bizarre holiday where you aren't going to work, but boy, oh boy, let's flood to the lakefront and let's get, no, listen, you need to get out. I get it. New York, they've closed down streets now because they're having problems with people congregating in parks. So people are getting creative and not saying people need to be locked in their houses like they're in a cell, but clearly, clearly you're not supposed to be out playing soccer with people, basketball with people. And so she was rightfully very upset about that and talking about taking it up to the next level there. We've been saying the same thing that we, our police department out in suburbs, but also the city, our folks are doing the exact same thing. People are so, so ignorant. They're going to be congregating together. We're definitely going to intervene. We're going to talk to people. We believe that's most likely what will resolve the problem. But could people then be given uh, citations and things like that? Yeah, they could be because this is real. This is real and they need serious people here. Well, Sheriff, uh, it doesn't get said nearly often enough, but we want to really thank you and your dedicated staff and officers for being so vigilant uh, during these times, especially, you know, you're on the front lines of this and keeping our county and our city safe. So, you know, putting yourself and your and, and your fellow officers at great peril in doing so, we, we really appreciate your service um, and thank you for your valuable time today. And also say hi to your brother, Tim, old law school buddy of mine. Uh, hope he's doing well in his family. Did he uh, actually graduate? Do we know that for sure? Did he get to Paul? Yeah, he's been on the extended program from uh, Northern Illinois. So <laughs> we're not quite sure what his status is. You might want to check on that. I will do that. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. 
designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka, and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Next on Legal Faceoff, we are very privileged to have back a frequent guest on Legal Faceoff, Jeff Kramer. Of course, everyone knows Jeff as Managing Director of Global Investigations and Strategic Intelligence Practice at Berkeley Research Group. He's also a former Assistant U.S. Attorney General and an expert in all things white-collar crime and security law. So very privileged to have Jeff back on the show. Jeff, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Thanks very much, Rich. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Jeff, tell us first of all about, um, you had some thoughts to the Chicago Tribune, I know, earlier this week about how the authorities, and specifically the Chicago Police Department, are reacting to COVID-19. Why don't you bring our uh, viewers up to date on that? Sure. So, you know, a, a couple of things, and I guess we'll start at the end. I think uh, CPD and the other First responders in Chicago are, are, are doing a very good job in a very difficult circumstances. So while, you know, 99% of us can stay at home and we're a little bored, but at least we're safe, CP doesn't have that, that luxury. Uh, crime is still going on. Uh, people are still committing issues of, of violence and, and CPD needs to be out there. They also have to deal with the fact that their ranks uh, literally uh, are coming down uh, with the virus periodically. So they need to be flexible, which they are uh, moving from district to district and doing this with an interim uh, superintendent. So I think they're doing a very good job so far. Jeff, you uh, lived, as we all did, but you professionally lived through the post 9-11 era. Talk to us about how the authorities' response to this pandemic compares to the way things uh, were following the attack in the World Trade Center. Yeah. So, I mean, some some similarities, obviously, you know, dialing back then, I was at the U.S. Attorney's office when, when 9-11 happened. And the issue was more reactive, classic law enforcement. It, subpoenas were being issued. Searches were being done. We were looking for potentially more bad guys. What was the next target? If you could kind of put yourself back into those days and weeks that immediately preceded 9-11. But what did happen were kind of, you know, not, I don't want to say lessons learned, but they did do some exercises which then I think is pretty comparable here. They did a top officials exercise, top off. They did it first in Seattle, and then top off two was done here in Chicago, and I helped uh, lead that for the Department of Justice locally, where we dealt with a, a potential uh, spread of a virus. I think that was uh, done uh, at the United Center, and you try to extrapolate from there to what first responders and authorities would do. Now, again, that was more of a criminal aspect. It was a terrorist attack, uh, but some eerie similarities between 
what we were examining in that tabletop exercise and top off and what we're seeing now. How much can authorities uh, and first responders really prepare for this? Obviously, this is a relatively new area for all of us. I assume that while first responders um, could strategize for pandemics, this one presents some really unique challenges that their preparation may not have um, you know, really prepared them for. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think you can do, and and federal, state, local authorities do do these tabletop exercises, and really, even more than that, they go to the next level where they simulate, and we did this in those exercises, we simulated people on gurneys, people getting taken to hospitals. You know, what would be the capacity of hospitals? A lot of the same conversations we're having now in real time, we were doing then in theoretical situations. So you can prepare people uh, somewhat, um, but it really does rely upon that training to react because every situation is different. There's no way we could have done any sort of exercise or anyone could to try to uh, try to foresee this. But you do the best you can. And, and I think we're in a, I don't want to say a good position, but a better position than we would have been in if people didn't prepare or didn't have the professionalism that you see a lot of these in, in a lot of these large cities. Jeff, let's turn your attention to another interesting legal story involving uh, the pandemic here. Right up your alley, in your former life, you would put people away for things like insider trading. We've got some allegations. In fact, uh, a lawsuit yesterday by an investor against Senator Richard Burr, who happens to be on the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. The allegation is that him and some other senators profited um, from some inside information that they received, some privileged information as a result of being on the Senate Intelligence Committee and actually dumped um, a bunch of stock right uh, before this really blew up. So talk to us about that and you know whether you think these senators are actually in trouble for what they're being accused of. Oh, they certainly should be. Um, you know, this is a, the, the next level of, of chutzpah for, uh, for, <laughs> US, for U.S. senators. And DOJ is setting up task force to deal with uh, virus fraud. You don't think the first level of fraud or crime is going to come again from, uh, from Congress. But we saw Senator Burr, uh, Senator Feinstein's husband sold a lot. It was a senator, the new senator from Georgia also, I believe, sold a lot of shares. But you look at a couple of things when you look at insider trading. One, do they have information improperly gained that the public didn't have? And here, as you indicated, I don't want to say Burr came right out of that meeting and sold. Maybe he took a cup of coffee for a second, but not much time. And he didn't just sell some stock. I believe he dumped everything. So that was pretty extreme. $1.7 million comes to mind. I'm pretty sure that's right. He just dumped it all. So you have to step back as you're looking to prove this case if you're a prosecutor. When was the last time anyone dumps all of their stock? You may sell a share or two or maybe a holding or two. No one dumps all their stock. So I think that's a pretty poignant uh, piece of evidence. And again, it's both sides of the aisle. This should be investigated. Um, I don't think it's a very difficult case. The Senator Burr's aide came out and said, in what was supposed to be a defense, but I think it's really a, a prosecutorial open statement, that the senator sold this stuff before the general public knew about the information. Yes, that's exactly the point. He sold it when he had information that the public didn't. Now, the quick thing, if you go back a few years, Congress used to be not uh, not assigned to the insider trading. They weren't considered insiders. 
President Obama changed that law several years ago for obvious reasons. And we just saw a U.S. congressman, I think out of sight, Buffalo, I'm pretty sure that's right, uh, get convicted and is going to serve time for insider trading. So these senators, I won't even say should be ashamed of themselves. That, 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 uh, that train already left. They need to be prosecuted. And frankly, they need to go to jail. This is egregious. Jeff, last question here on Legal Faceoff. You know, as a former uh, AUSA, you not just dealt with the substance of these crimes, but also the mentality of criminals and the psychology behind, you know, people profiting in a time of a national emergency. Not the first time we've seen it, right? Anytime you have these events, we've seen it with Hurricane Katrina. We've seen it with national, other national emergencies. Talk to our listeners a little bit about the psychology behind, you know, what it takes for someone to, in the middle of what's going to go down as one of the worst tragedies in world history for a person to think now is a great time for me to <laughs> rip off my fellow citizens and prey on their fears and make some money for myself. It's as old as time itself. So <laughs> the halls of Senate into, you know, perhaps the more pedestrian uh, criminal. Um, and as indicated, DOJ and, and local officers setting up a task force because they know it's coming. And you're right. Katrina, you know, Sandy, 9-11, pick a, pick a tragedy um, and fraudsters will come out. And it's some of the same things we've been seeing. The IRS scam, you know, as goofy as it sounds, that Nigerian prince who calls everybody. It works. There's a reason those calls get made. It works. So now you're going to see uh, with a little bit of information out there, because no one knows all the information about the stimulus package that was just passed. Let's use that as an example. People are going to start getting calls saying, um, this is the government. We have your check for $5,000. All you need to do is give us your, your checking account number, and we're going to submit it to you. You're going to be shocked at the number of people who give them their checking number. It absolutely will happen. Um, so you're right. It is a certain psychology. It's nothing new, and you'd hope people don't fall for it, but they will. Um, and there will be prosecutions, but we're only going to prosecute a small percentage of those who are going to get away with it. That's Jeff Kramer. We're really lucky to have him. He's all over the media, much sought after security and white collar crime expert uh, working from his home office today. We put on a tie for us this morning. We you appreciate it. Tie. <laughs> Jeff Kramer from Berkeley Research Group. Thinkbrg.com is the website. Thanks again for coming back on Legal Face Off, and we'll talk to you next time. Certainly. Take care, Rich. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio and Zoom on this Thursday here in Chicagoland. Rich Lankoff, Sam Panionovich, and Mark Falkoff joining us now, the Associate Dean at the Northern Illinois University College of Law. Go Huskies. Welcome, Dean. Thank you. Dean, thanks for joining us. Uh, talk to us about how this pandemic is affecting the law school in general. Well, uh, it, it's had pretty profound effects, the most important of which is that we can't have face-to-face -face meetings, so we can't interact with our students the way we'd like to. 
we've moved everything online and all of our professors are now teaching through Zoom or uh, Blackboard Collaborate, similar kinds of things. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of issues. So our library is closed. We can't have office hours with professors. Student activities have all been suspended. Graduation is uh, not going to happen in the way that we uh, normally would. So uh, it's, of course, been very, very disruptive. Especially disruptive, I imagine, because of the lack of warning. You know, sometimes you have some advance notice. This all um, came about relatively quickly. So I'm sure that, you know, while you adapted, you know, fairly well and fairly rapidly, the ability of your professors to adapt, many of whom have been doing it, you know, one way for so long, has been a huge challenge. Yeah, uh, professors certainly do have their yellowed notes that they've been using for many years. Um, I think uh, one thing is that a lot of the professors, they're, they're, they're part of a new generation, so they're tech savvy. And for the most part, for the most part, I think it's been pretty seamless uh, working with these kinds of uh, new platforms. Uh, I think it's important, though, to, to realize that this is really just a, a stopgap kind of measure. Uh, but first of all, it's very difficult putting law school classes online. Uh, we're not like an undergraduate class where it's reasonable to expect your professor will just be lecturing at you for 45 minutes or, or an hour. We really do depend on a kind of Socratic or quasi-Socratic dialogue. And that really becomes much more difficult in this uh, context, but it's, it's not impossible. Um, if you really do online learning the right way, which is something that we have uh, started looking into in the past couple of years at the law school, you have to do more than just videotape your lectures or, or be a talking head. You, you really need to think strategically about pre-recorded videos and how long they are and uh, interactive assignments that you can do online. There's a whole pedagogy to it. And that's not what we're doing right now. Um, this is really stopgap. This is trying to keep our classes uh, going uh, in a reasonable way to finish out the semester. Uh, Dean, you mentioned the Socratic method. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, when I went to Northern Illinois oh, so many years ago, that was, you know, a big method that a lot of the professors uh, employed. I had, you know, some legendary NIU professors like um, Professor Schneider, who uh, was famous for his in, in, interrogatory style, right? Yes. Um, and that's part of the whole give and take of the Socratic method. So I'm sure that's a challenge. But um, I wanted to ask you about some of the practical effects, because one thing that among the many things that your school does really well is prepare students for the practical realities of practicing law. I know how important that is becoming as you know people look at law school differently now. So you're missing the ability to have mock trials, to have moot court, to have practical internships with state's attorneys and public defenders, all of which is such a huge part of um, you know going to law school. Well, you nailed it. So you don't need me to, to, to tell you any of this. Uh, that is uh, probably the, the most significant impact from my perspective of this law school uh, shutdown is the, the, the skills training. And we're certainly doing what we can, but that's where the biggest hit is. So externships uh, no longer allow students for the most part to participate on site at law firms or in state's attorney's offices. Uh, the clinics have more or less shut down. Our prisoners' rights project, uh, certainly we've had to suspend visits to clients in uh, the, the prisons and depositions that we were planning on uh, taking. So, uh, you know, we've had to find alternative ways to provide a meaningful experience 
for our students. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll certainly do it, but no one thinks it's going to be ideal. Um, one thing is to, you know, you can do a lot of paperwork as uh, not in the bad sense, you know, brief writing and, and motion preparation as a lawyer. And we can have our students work on that uh, kind of thing. Uh, we, we've also asked our students to, to think, take advantage of this uh, crisis to think creatively. I, I asked uh, our externship director to sit down with the students and just think about, uh, in lieu of working at their placements, uh, think strategically. Uh, think about three, four, six, eight months from now. Uh, what is the legal community going to need? What kinds of unique opportunities are there uh, for uh, young lawyers who might want to think creatively about solving some of the problems that wouldn't have arisen but for this crisis. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for a different kind of learning. Well, uh, Dean, we certainly appreciate the fact that you're still working and providing a really valuable service, not just to the students, but to the community. Um, so uh, hang in there, stay at it, and we really appreciate your time this morning on Legal Face Up. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rich. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Joining us now on Legal Faceoff, Samantha Stokes, who is a staff reporter at The American Lawyer to talk about lawyers working from home. Samantha, welcome to our Zoom call. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. Hope you both are staying safe and maybe enjoying uh, more of the sweatpants part of your wardrobe than you normally would be. Yeah, <laughs> It's like a mullet for me. It's sweatpants below and, you know, business <laughs> up. Um, Samantha, so we were really intrigued by the article you wrote for The American Lawyer about how being homebound during these times presents a rather unique challenge to attorneys. Talk to us about uh, those challenges. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, last week I wrote a story just a little bit about how everybody is now transitioning uh, to working from home, or or quite a few people in the workforce are. Um, If you're an attorney, uh, that might mean that uh, all of the traveling that you're doing, all of the face-to-face client meetings and face-to-face meetings with people at your firm, all of a sudden are now happening over Zoom. Um, And for kind of an industry that really values that uh, face-to-face human interaction, uh, it it is a little bit difficult. It's interesting because on one hand, Um, As kind of younger attorneys are um, entering law firms with the expectation that maybe they would like to work from home occasionally, switching entirely to remote work is, um, I I think, a challenge that that everybody is kind of grappling with as as firms move into their first and second week of totally remote work. 
Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, the um, book on millennials has been over the last few years or not even millennials, but whatever the current generation is called, uh, that they really value the flexible work schedule working from home. You know, we as a firm instituted that policy uh, a while ago. We've covered it extensively on our show. And now it's like, hey, you want to work from home? Well, here you go. You're going to be working nothing, you know, nowhere but home. So how do you think um, those younger lawyers are dealing with that? They're probably a lot easier to adapt to that than some more seasoned attorneys. Yeah, what I've been hearing is that, um, you know, younger attorneys, they are a little bit more oftentimes tech savvy. They do want that flexibility of being able to work from home. But, you know, kind of that difference between like, hey, one or two days a week, you know, really works with my schedule, really works with my clients and how I like to do things as opposed to just kidding the entire firm and everybody has to work from home and, and you're, tra- you're transitioning to doing that full time. I think that's where the culture shock is definitely coming from, where certainly people are equipped to do so. And I've been talking to, you know, various law firms and, and leaders at law firms who've said they've spent weeks making sure they're all of their uh, programs and all of their um, technology is, is, is able to do it, but still just that shock of like moving an entire business, an entire firm online is uh, I think something that, that people are still adjusting to. So Martha, talk to us about what you're seeing in the market about the unique challenges to women um, and other attorneys who may also now be responsible for childcare, uh, given that their kids are not going to school generally anymore. Yeah, so that was a really interesting thing as I was kind of talking around and asking people, because if you talk to some law firm leaders, you know, they're saying that, you know, working from home is going really smoothly. And from a technology standpoint, from a meeting standpoint, you know, they've been able to make that transition um, at the same time, talking to associates, talking to um, some maybe younger partners with younger kids, they're all of a sudden, it's not just, okay, I'm, I'm working from home full time. I'm, I'm changing the way that I am, you know, maybe doing my workflow a little bit, but it's still kind of business as usual. Um, they're now having to try to figure out how they fit in an entire day of, of, you know, law firm work with also caring for, you know, a five-year-old kid. Um, <laughs> so that's, uh, definitely another wrench that's been uh, kind of thrown into all of this, that how do you do that high-level work when you're also, you know, at home with a full family, you're, you know, making lunches, you are, um, you know, in charge of, you know, to a certain degree, certainly just taking care of your kids, but also, you know, giving them schoolwork because all these parents are, or all of these teachers, excuse me, are, are, um, sending work home and expecting some of those things to be done too. Um, in studies show that, that oftentimes, you know, women are, are doing a disproportionate um, amount of, you know, housework and child rearing activities anyway. So all of these factors are kind of adding on to make this, you know, remote working experience specifically for women attorneys and for attorneys uh, uh, with kids uh, extra challenging. Samantha, so much of what goes into uh, our work lives involves not just the substantive work that we as attorneys do, but the interaction we have with clients and especially colleagues. Um, No matter how tech savvy you are, no matter how much you can work from home, there's no substitute for, you know, the interaction you have with a colleague stopping by their office and running something by them or grabbing lunch or whatever. Um, What has your research into this issue revealed in terms of the impact that that's having and may have long-term on people's 
you know, mental health. Inevitably, we're going to see people just, you know, beaten down by the fact that you're stuck in your home office, no matter how great your home office is, <laughs> you're still not, you know, out there interacting with people. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And uh, it might be a little bit too early to tell. I feel like I've been talking to people who are still really like, we're going to make this work. Things are going to be okay. Interestingly, um, uh, when I've posed that question to attorneys that I've spoken with about kind of missing that human interaction with clients, with other people at the firm, people have actually said that, you know, since these times are so unprecedented and since everybody is, is going through this to some extent, actually being able to hop on a Zoom call with a client and, you know, you're seeing their home office, they're seeing your home office. If you can get past, you know, having a kid yelling in the background a little bit, it can actually be um, just a way to really humanize everybody and to actually have that connection. So I think it's going to be really interesting going forward to see if, you know, this, you know, this moment in time that requires remote work is going to allow law firms to be a little bit more flexible in the future about, you know, having this opportunity, um, hopefully under happier times um, um, for attorneys if this really is what works for them. And by all, at all costs, I think one takeaway is don't be naked, right? Avoid avoid (laughs) that naked guy in the Zoom call that we now all have seen. Um, (laughs) All right, so last question on Legal Face Off. Speaking of home offices, you've got some interesting things going on in your background there. What's is that a, what kind of instrument are we talking about there below, uh, above the uh, bookshelf uh, on top? Is that a musical instrument? I actually don't know. I have pulled <laughs> up with um, like a family friend because I was living alone in my place in Brooklyn. And um, <laughs> I decided that I was a little bit too lonely after a couple of weeks. So I have family friends who are out of town. So I'm staying um, with them at a different place. Um, so I don't know. It's going to be a great question to pose back to them when, when they do return. Well, next, the next time we do this, by the next time we do this, you should know what that is, Samantha. So, yes. by the way, just yes. stay comfortable. You know, if you want to throw a hood on or, you know, just <laughs> relax a little bit, there's no problem. I was going to say, Sam, the next time we call Samantha, because she's been such an amazing guest, is you either have to learn that instrument and play the legal face-off theme song or have <laughs> whoever owns it do us that favor. Okay, I, I promise. That'll be great. <laughs> she is Samantha Stokes, staff reporter at The American Lawyer. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. It is the largest, by far the largest legal grab bag we have ever had. We have three guests. Their guests have guests. It's amazing here. We have Rich Lankov, of course. My name is Sam Penny. I was Andy DeVote. Partner at Loeb and Loeb joining us. That is not a Packers logo, by the way. That is a Georgia right. logo. Andy, back. Thank you. Sydney Posner and Jake and Grant joining us. They are flanking her on the left and on the right. She's the executive director at Claims Exchange. Sydney, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Patty Lankov on the East Coast, joined by a friend as well. Hi, Patty. Welcome to the show. The senior managing director at Teneo. Welcome. Thank you. So, Rich, where do you want to start here? How is your guest also? Million people. My guest, Gabriella Hate my daughter. Oh, cool. I've got a guest too. Come on in quickly. I've got another Lenko joining the party. Come on in, Coop. So introduce yourself. I'm Cooper. Are you gonna- <laughs> Hi, Cooper. <laughs> Hi, Coop. He did not feel the need to dress up for the show. So, Coop, stay. you got to talk about some of these issues. So I didn't um, bother to dress up either for the show, but that's, that's fine. So seven topics. You know the drill. Jump in, jump out when you feel the need. And we're going to start, obviously, with the corona, uh, coronavirus. And the first topic 
is the terror charges, Rich. Yeah, a lot of corona topics, obviously. That is dominating legal news. We tried to mix it up and find some non-corona topics, but heavily corona-influenced show today. So, yeah, the first uh, issue that we're seeing is, of course, as we just talked about with Jeff Kramer, former assistant U.S. attorney, is this rash of fraud we're seeing around the country. You know, people taking advantage of this pandemic, as we see in a lot of natural disasters, to, you know, prey on people's weaknesses. We see a lot of robocalls. We see a lot of hoarding. The Justice Department um, is now going to go after these people and use local assistant U.S. attorneys, um, and including uh, charging them with terrorism. Uh, We've seen examples of people coughing. There was a uh, New Jersey uh, man who coughed in a woman's face and joked that he had Corona, while he was arrested and charged with a terrorist act. Uh, We've seen videos of people at grocery stores, you know, sneezing and coughing on um, vegetables and fruit. So I think it's a good sign that the authorities are going to be going after these people, including charging them with terrorist uh, acts. So let's start with Andy. Andy, you used to work for the federal government. Uh, Do you think this is a good use of powers? The ACLU has said that it's overbroad and the government shouldn't be going after people with you know, charges usually reserved for terrorists. Yeah, you know, I guess I tend to lean a little towards uh, hoping that the U.S. attorney's offices will use their discretion. And, you know, if, if we've all seen the first season of Jack Ryan. If you haven't, you should watch it. I think in those instances, if someone's really trying to harm someone and weaponize this in any way, it makes perfect sense. You get an idiot like the guy at the New Jersey grocery store, charge him with something. I don't know, the idea of terrorism to me seems a little, going a little far. I think they probably want to make an example out of some people and hope that other people will get themselves in line. Um, but I hope that they use their discretion in a way that we are, you know, using our resources in the right way. So I guess I tend to lean towards smacking them with something, but maybe not the terrorism label. Sydney and fellow Posners, how do you feel about going after uh, people who, you know, use the threat of Corona this way as, as terrorists? What do you think? Um, with the whole idea of like using the coronavirus as threats, um, I seriously think it's a uh, it's it's a good thing that the authorities are stepping up and they're charging people with terrorist acts because like this is a big deal. It's a worldwide thing and it's like it's a uh, sorry uh, I'm not that big of a public speaker. Um, yeah, but good use of good use yeah. of the authorities' powers. It sounds like, huh? Yeah. yeah. So you want them to you want them to throw the book at him in a big way. Yeah. Okay. Um, my two cents on it is I would want to believe that the people committing these acts know of the coronavirus and what the coronavirus does to people. So my question to those people, not that they're listening or anything, is like, are you sure that what you're doing is supposed to be funny or what you're doing is to get others sick? I know it's likely not that they want to get people sick, but why would you do these things if you know that Corona is something that. Right. Well, so kind of of like what they do in the airports where someone, you know, jokes about threatening with a bomb, you know, it could be a joke. It could be someone saying like, oh my gosh, I'm going to blow this plane up. And they're, they're also held to a very high level of, of legal um, scrutiny. So I think it's in some cases, Yes, it should be, but I think it needs to be on a case-by-case basis. And going like with what Andy said, yeah, I think we need to have um, we need to have someone be the example. So maybe this is the guy that's the example, and then after that, maybe people wouldn't use it. I guess. 
Gabrielle, speak up for your generation. I blame this all on on TikTok, and everyone wants to be famous, <laughs> even, if, even if it means getting you know not notoriety for coughing on someone. Speak up for your generation. Why the hell is everyone still outside on beaches and, and stuff? Come on. I think people don't really have the ability to sort of like nothing like this has happened for our generation yet. I think obviously like things have happened for select areas and groups of people, but I think this is such a widespread thing and nothing like this has ever happened before that people can't really grasp like the enormity of the situation. Um, So they don't, unless they see it firsthand, I think they're just like, all right, like it's happening, but it's never going to happen to me. So they just like go about their daily lives as if nothing is going on. Yeah. And, um, and we had, I had that conversation with someone yesterday. Like it's, it's a silent, it's a silent something. Like we don't see anything. We're just listening to people talk about it, but we're not seeing it. And we're all kind of social distancing. Like I've been in my house since a week ago, Monday was like 11 days now. And I, it looks great outside. Like it does, you don't see anything. So it's kind of hard to feel it except for what people are talking about. Um, you know what I, I do feel though? I feel the what, stupidity, like all those kids in Florida. Sorry, Patty, let me cut you off. All okay. those kids in Florida, they're like, I spent all this money on spring break and you're not going to ruin my party. Those people are the worst, Patty. They're the Sam, worst. Sam, wait, I have, to, I have to tell you, that's your people because Florida people are inside. It's the tourists that <laughs> the time to come down here because no real people that live in Florida go to the beach in Florida. Just saying. <laughs> So that's why we are all white, but uh, like very pale. But, that, but that's the point. That's like so those weird. are your people, not our people. That are down. Well, you say spring break people. All right, yeah. let's keep moving because we got another interesting story. Sam, the uh, man spat on in Brooklyn Station. Shall we go there? Yeah, I mean a similar story. Uh, this is a um, a man who was arrested, thankfully, because he was charged with a hate crime for. Um, going at spitting on an Asian man. Uh, we've seen a lot of backlash, unfortunately, against Asians. And, you know, a lot of people are blaming the president who consistently is calling this the Chinese virus. So, Patty, that's your neck of the woods. Uh, do you think it's appropriate to use, again, things like hate crimes to go after people who are uh, making victims out of, you know, minorities, Asians? Yeah, so I think... They should. I think it's a big problem. I think people, you know, feel, I mean, to look at it from the side of the the sort of perpetrator, I think people feel out of control and are looking for people to blame. So, you know, it's easy, of course, you know, to um, pick an Asian person, um, you know. It, I think it does need to have a repercussions. Otherwise, we're going to have complete chaos. But I think, you know, you look at the psychology of what's going on and people really don't know what to do and who to blame. And, it, you know, it's easy to find the obvious sort of target. Andy, uh, you know, obviously um, hate crimes are not something that we should tolerate. And we see this time and time again in, tra- in times of, you know, crisis, people look for scapegoats. That's a story as old as time. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, first of all, the point you made, it would help if, you know, tone at the top is always important. And none of us may uh, appreciate the lack of transparency from the Chinese government, not the Chinese people, but the Chinese government, but calling it the Chinese virus doesn't help people in the ICU in New York or people in the ICU in other parts of our country. We need to focus on what we can do to handle the problem we have, in my opinion. Um, I absolutely do hope the federal government comes down like a ton of bricks on these idiot white supremacists who, you know, you've heard this chatter of, you know, getting the virus on purpose and going to a synagogue or going to a community of color, uh, 
you know, to me, that's a definition of that's terrorism and a hate crime. Um, and I do think this is something where using resources, like what type of society are we and what do, what do we stand for and what are we going to tolerate out of our people? And, and it is true that crisis brings out the worst in us, but we hope it also will bring out the best in us. And so this is something I have very little patience for. Well, right, I was going to bring up, I just oh, wanted to say, it reminds me of, you know, the unfortunately the AIDS epidemic. There were people during that time who actually knew they had, you know, the virus and they went ahead and they infected other people knowingly. So hopefully it's a small subset of crazy people, but it's, you know, it's happened before, unfortunately. That's a good point. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, Sam, let's talk about the uh, Purell loss <laughs> because everyone is using Purell, but maybe they are wrong to rely on it. Sam? <laughs> there was a bottle of Purell in here, but I think that's been confiscated. So, yes, there's a lawsuit over misleading claims about the effectiveness of said Purell. Yeah, we're all living for Purell. Um, <laughs> I actually found in my uh, closet here some Purell. I looked at the date and it was 2014. Nice. Like I quickly Googled the effectiveness of, you know, six-year-old Purell. I'm not sure, but yeah, there's a class action lawsuit uh, against the makers of Purell uh, alleging that it is overstating its effectiveness in dealing with things like, you know, coronavirus. You know, it claims that it kills 99.9% of viruses uh, that is not supported by the FDA. So this class action is going after, you know, a uh, company. And we've covered a lot of class actions on legal face-off. And, you know, many are sort of silly. Um, but uh, let's start with Sydney. What do you think of, uh, of this class action lawsuit? And are you now going to make your own Purell in the confines of your own home there? <laughs> um, well, no, because I was one of those late believers in all of this. And so we did not buy Purell. We ended up going to like Bath and Body Works and buying the pretty scented stuff that's, you know, only so much alcohol. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of marketing out there for a lot of, in a lot of different areas and a lot of, for Purell specifically, if they're saying that it kills 99% of germs and it does not, then yes, then the class action has to go forward. All right, Patty, Gabrielle, Gabriella, um, Class actions are, by definition, you know, very broad, and one class is representing a whole group of people. Do you think that this is an effective use of the legal system, if true? I mean, obviously, we don't know if it's true, but what are your thoughts on this lawsuit? I think that it's, I hate to say it, about making money and, you know, make, taking advantage of an opportunity um, that, you know, we're living in. So it's a nice time to point fingers at Purell and uh, try to see how that plays out financially. All right, you've got to go. I understand. Could uh, could my niece stay for the rest of the uh, podcast? Yeah. All right. Thanks. So, so you've got you've got a business call, I know. But uh, Ed, thanks for joining us. Andy, what are your thoughts on uh, class action lawsuits like this? And in this case, do you agree with uh, Patty that this is you know profiteering? Yeah, I can imagine what the plaintiff's lawyers are saying to the defense lawyers on a lawyer-to-lawyer call, as can you, about what they're going to do to them, you know, with the backdrop and when this blows up, the exposure to the company, so you better go ahead and pay us a lot of money right now. That's the cynical lawyer in me. But, you know, there is a part of me that agrees with Sydney in terms of, um, you know, there's always a tension between the legal department and the marketing department, as you were alluding to, Sydney, at all of these companies, pushing the envelope with the marketing, whether it's any contact. So I do think lawsuits like this can be helpful to make sure that 
the public isn't misled, particularly if you have an administration where they're not using the federal government, the FTC or entities like that to, you know, to perform that watchdog function aggressively. But I do think in this instance, you know, it's the, there, it seems like a prime opportunity for a plaintiff's lawyer to make a quick score. Cynthia, as soon as we hang up, tell your boys to go run to uh, the computer and buy up every coronalawsuit.com domain name that's out there, because I guarantee you those are going to be really valuable. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to our next story, Sam. Well, I wanted to show you, I don't think you saw this uh, ah. king-size bottle uh, of Purell. Very I big. will give you $10,000 for that right now. <laughs> and it does say it kills 99.99% of germs, which... Maybe I'll sue them as well. All right, next story comes from I hate NPR. to be, guess what? You're, you're standing in a place that has the 0. 0.001. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm cooked. Uh, me and my people are all cooked. All right, the insanity defense. And the Supreme Court is allowing states to virtually eliminate it. This according to NPR. A yeah, big decision on uh, Monday. Um, interesting for so many ways. We've got a limited time. We could talk probably the whole hour about this. Um, but, you know, one thing I found interesting was that Elena Kagan joined right. five Republicans in this decision. We're fortunate enough to have, let's see, none other than a, a Supreme Court clerk, uh, Andy DeVote, with us. He's usually joining us on our Supreme Court panel. But, Andy, give us a quick summary of what this decision means. We've all heard of the insanity defense for right. years. And basically, you know, defendants allege that they're not responsible because they did not know the difference between right and wrong. How does this decision alter that? Right. So since 1979, all 50 states have had an insanity defense, a formal defense you can offer that through mental defect, you can't have the intent to have committed the crime you're charged with. Five states, including Kansas, have now outlawed as a formal matter that you can offer this mental insanity defense. And so the idea was, does this violate your fundamental constitutional right, the right of due process? And you hit the nail on the head, the most interesting part the court upheld the Kansas law, which said that uh, they could exclude it as a formal defense. It's from Elena Kagan, uh, who is a respected jurist, I think a straight shooter, but obviously what you would call a, a part of the liberal wing of the court. Uh, the two interesting parts are one that she wrote it. So you have to think, Rich, in her mind, in her view, that she points out you can still put on evidence of mental difficulties. You can still argue that the government hasn't shown you know, that you had the requisite intent it's just more of like a formal matter that you can't put the defense on. Whether that's true or not, I think we're just going to have to see how the cases play out. But the fact that she was willing to join those five, I think if she truly thought it was limiting the ability of defense lawyers to put forward evidence of someone's mental defect, she, there's no way she would have joined it. The other thing I just want to mention really quickly, not to egg out on you, is that Chief Justice Roberts, as a chief justice, assigns who writes the opinions. And I think one interesting point for anyone, whether you're a lawyer or not, is he assigned this opinion to her. And there's clear strategy in that, and that he's wanting her to write that opinion. She's the face of this opinion. It's going to be a lot harder for what he would consider folks who are going to criticize this, you know, because they're going to pause exactly as you did, you know, in thinking and talking about it. So I think it was very deliberate that he gave this opinion to her to, uh, to write for the majority. Yeah, that's amazing insight. Gabrielle, I had to, you are a sophomore at Washington University in St. Louis, currently not there, unfortunately. Uh, by the way, you got to talk to uh, Andy here about how to become a Supreme Court clerk. Uh, um, but you've heard about the insanity defense, I'm sure. What do you think generally when you hear that someone who, you know, is being charged with a crime is alleging that they were insane at the time and couldn't tell the difference between right and wrong? If you were on that jury, do you think you would buy that argument or do you think it would just be perceived by you as 
a legal trick to absolve yourself of responsibility? Ooh, um, that's a honestly, tough one, right? At this point, yeah, early I, in the morning in Connecticut. I don't know how qualified I am to speak on this, but honestly, I think um, I would have to sit there and like see a person and see how they're behaving in court to understand really if they're using this as like a tactic or if they're actually. Because I feel like if you're insane at the time, I feel like that's not. I, I don't really know that much, but I think behavior on the spot like you can tell if people are acting you can tell what people are doing to make people believe a certain thing so well, i'll tell you what as a trial lawyer you just nailed the answer because it's exactly Ooh. true it's not something you can read about in a book or you know just read on paper you have to be in that jury box and look at them and perceive their demeanor and their credibility because mm -hmm. andy will tell you from dealing with these cases over the years that you know people could fake any kind of defense but really our whole system of jury trials are based on the idea that you got 12 ordinary people in a box looking at that person and perceiving them. We saw that in the Weinstein trial, right, Sydney? You know, Weinstein came in and he was using a walker and he was very deliberately trying to influence the jury that, oh, you should have pity on me because of my condition. The jury didn't buy it. So, so much of what will, you know, persuade a jury on things like the insanity defense is perceiving their demeanor, like Gabriella said. Sydney, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? No, I agree. And and look, thinking back to to watching my 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 whole experience with this is literally watching like Law and Order. You know, watching those those cases and stuff on TV, and watching them with my mother at at some point, and having her say, "The last thing you want to do is claim the insanity defense because then they put you away in some crazy loony bin, and you, that's worse than jail, and don't do that." And and um, but at the same time, I think that there are situational time frames where people may be I don't want to use the word insane, but just not have their complete faculties. Looking at for example, like a police officer, when he's under that kind of duress, when he has a gun pointed at him mm -hmm. in that specific instance, does he have all of his faculties? I don't know. I'm not a police officer with a gun pointed at me. So I don't I, I think it's a situational thing. I think that it's um, you may be insane for that situation or have your faculties not there for a situation, but but still be completely sane in every other aspect of your life. So I, I really don't I don't have an answer for you. Rich. Sorry. OK, Sam. Four topics down, three to go. This one is really surprising. Hey, Alexa's listening to everything you do. Shocker. Hey, Alexa, play legal face-off. She's listening to that. She's also listening to everything so she can hear everything. And now a case, according to Bloomberg, on hearing confidential calls. Yeah, firm, a law firm has advised their attorneys to not discuss uh, legal issues at home if there is a device like Alexa or Ring because of the you know, uh, possible breach of confidentiality. Uh, how do you do that when you're working from home? That's the dilemma. You know, uh, Andy will uh, agree that we take these things very seriously, and if we breach a client's confidentiality, bad things can happen. We could be you know, disbarred um, at, at, you know, at, at a lot of other bad things. So we have to maintain confidentiality. Is Alexa really listening? Listen, there's been a lot we've covered on this show many lawsuits involving uh, people alleging that these devices are not just listening, but giving your information out to other parties. I'm convinced that when I get a pop-up ad for, you know, uh, whatever, yeah. because I'm talking about it, Alexa's listening. 
right? Well, How the hell would Alexa know that I need marshmallows? Why would Cindy have marshmallows? So Alexa's listening. Something lawyers need to be worried about. Cindy, go ahead. So, but I think it's more than Alexa. I think that my phone, I, I literally have a conversation about something and two minutes later, I don't have an Alexa. I don't have those devices in my house, but literally two minutes later, an ad will pop off on Facebook. So what is listening? We know that they are, we know that these devices are listening. So where does that confidentiality stop if it's Alexa or one of those other devices? Your boys, I see your boys with the headset marks from playing, you know, uh, Fortnite all day. Yes. So that, that that's listening on PlayStation and Xbox is listening all the time. Right. So where does it stop? If it's just those two, does it extend past that? And seriously, my I have two or three devices, an iPad and an iPhone, my computer all on my desk right now. Is something they're listening where I'm going to get a pop-up on something, like I said, on one of my social media accounts with ads based upon that. So I don't, I think that Look, we're everywhere we go. People are listening, and you got to be careful. I don't Andy, know. have you taken any measures now that you're working from home to ensure confidentiality? Yeah, I mean, I take extra steps in terms of our firm works with a lot of tech companies, and so you know, there's certain things we absolutely can't have laptops. You know, there's certain uh, ways we communicate can't communicate certain things like that. We, you know, you can't have Google, Yahoo, any of that stuff uh, on your laptop anyway. You know, I'm here, uh, I have four kids and a St. Bernard puppy. So I'm here in my bedroom and my wife is upstairs in the office and, you know, only thing in here is my laptop. But um, I will tell you, I think the tech companies probably hope that uh, they, it doesn't come to light that they're listening to, because you all remember to your point, there was an instance where they got caught. They were listening to conversations so they could uh, fine tune their algorithms. And so now you have to affirmatively opt in uh, and volunteer for that. And it was a big dust up. And I think, you know, if they were ever to come to light, um, you know, it would have a really, really big impact on the company. So, but yeah, we're, we're taking sort of practical steps that we can. Sam, resume, resume inflating. <laughs> I have never You've inflated never my resume, but I got a long way to go. Uh, this lawyer has been suspended after submitting an inflated resume to a big law firm. It was submitted and then this person was caught. Yeah. Yes. Seth Nadler's his name. He's been handed a one-year suspension from the New Jersey Supreme Court. You know, uh, he applied for a job at a firm called Williams and Conley, and among the violations, among the uh, misleading or, or statements or lies, was inflating his GPA from a 3.2 to a 3.8. Uh, he said that he was in the honors program in legal writing, even though that program is a pass/fail. Um, he claimed an article was his own that he actually co-wrote. Um, there was a total of 26 mis misrepresentations in his transcript. So pretty egregious. So I'm going to direct this to the kids uh, here on the call. Uh, Gabriella, you will be in the workforce. You have been in the workforce before. Uh, while it's tempting to inflate your resume, and everyone, you know, over the years has maybe fudged a little bit here and there, but this is a little bit over the top, and this is what can happen. So let this be a lesson to you and kids. <laughs> <laughs> Gabrielle, what are your thoughts on this as someone who is actively, you know, sending out resumes? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it all comes out sooner or later. Um, if you budge something on your resume, like a GPA raised from 3.2 to 3.8 is easily. That's a big job. Like you can easily find out that you're lying. Um, I mean, I think people do fudge their resumes all the time in small ways which I'm not saying it's fine, but people usually get away with it. But I think like, I don't know, you have to be smart about things like that. And if something like that is going to come out, like 
don't raise your GPA that much. Poser kids, what uh, what grades are you guys at? Um, we are both seniors in high school. Grade in high school. All right. So uh, tempting to maybe you know exaggerate your accomplishments, but not a great idea, right? You don't want to get cut. Of course not. Um, my so I I am part of the workforce. I've been working in the food industry for two years now. Um, but I look at it as if I were to inflate on my resume, which is a resume, like it was just kind of like a fill out piece of paper type thing. Um, you got to look at it like you're not just boosting yourself, but you're ripping away opportunities from people that deserve it way more than you do. And honesty, though it may not be shown on a resume sometimes, because honesty is more of like a face-to-face type thing where you have to judge the person. Um, I think that honesty could could go a long way. And my philosophy on life is um, what comes around goes around, honestly. And um, so I'm looking at your mom, by the way, I'm looking at your mom as you're going through this and she's either going to be very proud or she's going to slap you across the head in a second. But I no, think I, it's the second one. I, I know. I'm seriously <laughs> going like, holy cow. I think You're I like, did kind of a good job. Like, like who is this kid? Who is this kid? <laughs> that's, no, that's, awesome. a, that's a great answer. Uh, and you applied for one of the most exclusive jobs in the world, one of the toughest jobs to get, a clerk for the United States Supreme Court. Uh, you did not have to inflate your resume, but I'm sure – there are people who apply to jobs like that who are tempted to inflate it because, again, it's one of the toughest jobs in the world to get. Yeah, just you know, but I think that the kids gave the best answers you can, which is it is going to be found out. What goes around comes around. But the other thing I would just say on this is that the other lesson here, first of all, don't tangle with Williams and Conley and something like this. <laughs> They're absolutely going to go for that is not the firm you want to get caught lying to. Right. And I mean that as a compliment to them as trial lawyers. But the kid didn't own it either. I, you know, I read the article you forwarded just so, you know, for the show and the kid thought he was depressed and, you know, come on, like we get with the program, like own it. And I think they would have given him a lot less, maybe, maybe even a smaller slap on the wrist. If he just would have said, he caught me, I apologize. I shouldn't yeah, have done that. For sure. uh, well, but it's not his fault, Andy. It's only his resume. Why would it be his fault? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. come on. That's Last right. topic here. Seven out of seven, those poor celebrities, they are crying coronavirus and they want out of prison. Well, you knew this would happen. We've covered almost all of these stories on our on Legal Face Off over the uh, years, but it's pretty amazing. Talk about people trying to take advantage of a disaster um, to better themselves. We see a whole host of celebrities alleging that they should be, you know, released from prison because of the exposure they will face to Corona, as if, you know, because you're famous, right. you have any more rights than anyone else. We just heard Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart talk about, no, we're not releasing people. They're dangerous criminals. We're not going to release them. So here's the list. Uh, Julian Assange, of course, the founder and publisher of, Wiki, of Wiki, WikiLeaks. No. Uh, we've got <laughs> Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal attorney, who, uh, through his attorney, has requested to a federal judge on Tuesday to be released. Um we have none other than Bill Cosby himself, who is, of course, uh, serving time, um, having been convicted in 2018 of sexual assault. He's serving a prison sentence of between three and 10 years at a Pennsylvania correctional institution. He said, 
Those inmates, this is through his attorney, could fall victim to the coronavirus and easily spread the disease to Mr. Cosby as they wheel him around in a wheelchair. Wham, wham, poor Cosby. Uh, Michael Avenatti, we've got uh, someone named, maybe the kids will know this. I can't even pronounce this because it's like a number. Takashi 69? Takashi 69. What the hell? I don't know what that is. Uh, he's saying that he should get a, who is Takashi 69? He's a art a rapper. He's a rapper. He's serving a two-year pr uh, prison sentence, and he has asked to finish his sentence under home arrest, saying that he suffers from asthma and is therefore at a higher risk. So I'll throw this around. Should celebrities be treated differently? Andy DeVoe, as a big celebrity, uh, I know that you're going to say yes on behalf <laughs> of your fellow celebrities, but should 6 9 get out? Free 6 9 <laughs> No. I, uh, listen, I will say, I think the departments of corrections around this country have a difficult job, um, whether it's the county or uh, IDOC here and their partners. It's a difficult job. You ever been to one of those facilities? The nature of those facilities, Stateville, Menard, any of those, they're just difficult because they're maximum security facilities and you have a lot of folks in close proximity. So I generally feel for the populations and for the staff trying to manage the situation, but absolutely not. I mean, absolutely not. They don't deserve any preferential treatment. The only folks they should really be looking at are the folks who, uh, you know, I think are in prison who have underlying conditions, try to take steps they can to make sure those folks maybe are separated from folks that uh, may, you know, potentially have the virus and to keep an eye on those folks that they know have lung issues, pneumonia, things like that to, uh, you know, to try to take care of them. But, but no special treatment. Absolutely not. All right. Let's wrap up quickly. What's the uh, show that you recommend our viewers and listeners binge on during this time. Uh, Better Call Saul. Sydney, you got Better Call Saul. <laughs> Better Call Saul. Poser boys, what do you recommend? Oh my God. Um, honestly, anything that like takes your time off, like The Office, How I Met Your Mother, Big Bang Theory, Friends, anything like that, anything that keeps your mind off this whole thing, make you laugh, make you cry, give you lots of emotions, and just... I'm crying just hearing that answer. That's a, that's a wonderful answer. Ah. Sam? So, well, yeah, oh, I just finished The Real Housewives of Orange County. No, I'm kidding. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I, uh, I knocked down the newsroom, and I'm about to start Friday Night Lights, the uh, high school football show uh, out of Texas, which then became a nice. movie. But uh, wow. I knocked down the newsroom on HBO, and now I'm ready for Friday Night Lights. Seriously, if y'all haven't watched Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, that's oh at God. least <laughs> through the end of this entire coronavirus because it'll take forever to finish them. Best shows on television by far. All right, Gabrielle, what do you got? I've been watching Arrested Development. Oh, yeah. nice. Oh, good. Andy? So I'm going to go Narcos, Jack Ryan. Uh, those are too definite for me. I think that you'll be entertained. Wow. So I reckon those are, I, so I want to watch both of those, actually. Those are on my queue. I've been recommending, but my two are a little bit, no one watches these shows, but Fargo, actually coming back this month, I think, is amazing. Every episode of Fargo for three seasons was Amazing. And then uh, a show called The Missing, which is a, I'm usually not into foreign shows, but this is a show, it was like British or French, two seasons uh, about uh, a family whose kid goes missing and they show it in real time and then they show flashbacks. Just amazing TV. If you could find it, I'm not sure where it is, but uh, The Missing and Fargo are both amazing. I um, do have, sorry, um, I do have, one thing, it may be 10 episodes, but all three of us have watched the entire thing and it was the most emotional roller coaster I think we've all endured. It's called Love is Blind. It is on Netflix. No! Oh my God. No way. 
<laughs> There's no way I'm wasting my life on that garbage. <laughs> we love to hate the people on that show. Oh and God. look at that. We're out of time. Show, We're out of time. What's the Tiger Show? Have you watched that one? Everyone's buzzing. Oh, I watched the, the, first season, the first episode last night. I can't wrap my head around how crazy it looks like a mess. All right, Sam, take us out of this. Take us out of this. All right. For Gabriella, for Jake, for Grant, for Sydney, for Randy, for Patty, for Rich and Sam, thank you so much for joining us. All of you stay safe, and we'll talk to you next time on Legal Face. Take care, guys. Thank you. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the.